Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The Bible says that every word of God proves true. And since that is true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We have journeyed through this New Testament letter together, and we find ourselves at one of the summits of all of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As you're finding that, I want to say again, good morning. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I do not take it for granted the great privilege to be a local church, to be brothers and sisters together, to gather together around God's Word. It is wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to do my best to explain it, and then, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, we're going to come as a church family to the communion table, to the Lord's table, and do what Christians have been doing together since the early church, receiving communion together and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So let me read our text and pray, and we'll get into it. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this passage. Father, uh, what a privilege to open your word, to sing your word, to pray your word, to preach your word, to respond to your word. Help us. Lord, the goal this morning for us, we pray, is to make contact with your divine word. That's what we want to do. We want to come in contact with the glory of God and the face of His Son, Jesus, through the Word. Do what you intend to do in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, the early 1980s, I cheated on a spelling test from a little girl sitting next to me that I grew up with. Her name was Virginia Anderson brilliant kid. She went on to go to college at Harvard, actually. She was a valedictorian of our high school class, so I made a good decision on who to cheat from. (laughs) But around that time that I first dipped into cheating as a second grader off a spelling test, around that time I saw on the news and was captivated by news from the 1980 Boston Marathon. Have you ever heard of this lady named Rosie Ruiz? Rosie, in 1980, in the Boston Marathon, was the first female 
finisher of the, she won, apparently, the Boston Marathon. And what was striking about Rosie Ruiz is she was relatively new in the running scene. In fact, her time, her winning time in the Boston Marathon was like 25 minutes faster than any other recorded time that she had ever supposedly had. And it was the third fastest time ever recorded for a female in the Boston Marathon. But in the days after the race, she was doing some interviews along with the, the, the male winner of the race. And it was a little awkward in some of the interviews because she apparently didn't, she wasn't very familiar with some of the notable landmarks that every marathoner that was qualified for the Boston Marathon or was a serious runner would have been aware of in Boston. Also, as they looked at some photographs of Rosie as she came across the finish line, she was notably not drenched in perspiration. Come to find out, Rosie had entered the race about a half mile before the finish line. And she was found out and obviously disqualified. The Christian life is a race, a long one. And there are no shortcuts. And there is a particular way for us to run. I think that's what our text points us to. Three ways to run. Here's our outline. We're just going to have it on the screen. And then I want us to just stare at the text this morning. There are three ways to run the race of the Christian life. To run it unhindered, with endurance, and looking to Jesus. We are to run unhindered, with endurance, and looking to Jesus. I want us to first look at how we are to run unhindered. Look again at our text, and I want you to have your copy of God's Word open before you, and I want you to make contact with the text with your eyes. We're going to flip around a little bit in Hebrews, but I want you to stare at verses 1 through 3 before we come to the table. The first way that the author of Hebrews, after this great, remember where we are in the the flow of his thought, and chapters 1 through 10 has been this wonderful exposition of the the glory of the supremacy and the betterness of Christ over and against the Old Covenant, which was there to point to Jesus. And the temptation for these first century Christians was to go back and to flee from persecution because of their commitment to Christ and to go back to Judaism, which was acceptable in the Roman Empire. And the writer is exhorting them to not give up, to not go back, that Jesus is supreme, to not give up. That's what he does in chapters 1 through 10. And as we've journeyed through the past month or so, we looked at chapter 11, this wonderful passage, this wonderful chapter that gives, where, the, where the author gives us examples of all of these Christians who have gone before us. And then he begins as a transition, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's saying because of all these people that I've just mentioned in the previous chapter, because of them, then he gives us this exhortation to run unhindered and with endurance looking unto Jesus. And I just want to make a comment about this beautiful phrase at the beginning of verse 1, that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I don't think that the, the emphasis here is that those that have gone before us, whether they're the heroes of the Old Testament faith that our author has pointed us to, or whether they are you know, maybe a grandparent or an ancestor that has passed on that maybe prayed for us, I don't think the emphasis is that they are up in heaven cheering us on and witnessing us, 
but rather that their lives become a witness to us of the faithfulness of Christ and in his people. And the point that the author is making is because of all of the truth about Jesus that I've given you up to this point, and because of all of the examples of how it actually looks in the lives of his people, therefore, he gets on with it in verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. So that's the first way, is to run unhindered. And I want you to notice there in, in, in verse 1 how he distinguishes between laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I think that's an important distinction because the things that can hinder us from, from running the race are, aren't necessarily always sinful. They're, they're oftentimes spiritually neutral things that, that weigh us down. Things that we can't really put in a category of obvious rebellion to God, but just circumstances of life that will drag you down. I think every army guy in the room understands how difficult it is to run with a ruck on your back as compared to run, running without a ruck on your back. And when you have that 40, 50, 60 pound ruck, sometimes more, and you're running with it, the weight is shifting and it slows you down and you have to cinch it down and you, you, so it doesn't rub against your back and then you get a couple miles into it. I know you tankers have no idea what I'm talking about, but, but when you're running with a ruck on your back, it can cause blisters and the weight wears you down. And the, the, the picture here, the picture here is to lay that aside. And I think about all of the the things in, in our lives. And the, the, the challenge sometimes with application is if I mention a few things and it's not necessarily something that applies to you, you we sort of think, oh, well, you know, thank God that he mentioned that thing for Joe or Susie. But really, it takes discernment for us as the people of God to know what our particular neutral weights, things that aren't necessarily sinful, that might become a hindrance to us, that weigh us down. And the picture here that the author is giving us is he's saying that if it is hindering you, whatever it is, if it's hindering you from running, not this sprint, but this long race for Jesus, lay it aside. Drop that rock. He goes on to say, not only the weight, just these neutral things that may become hindrances to us in life, but also the sin which clings so closely. Now, a first century uh, listener to this sermon that the writer of Hebrews is preaching to them by way of letter and exhortation would have been very familiar with even the, the, the early uh, athletic games that would have went on, even in, in these cultures where, where they would run races and they would do various athletic events. In fact, the analogy of an athletic race is, is all throughout Scripture, and, and one thing that I think is, is in the author's mind here is that if you're getting ready to run a race, that sin can become kind of like a cloak. Or think about what the, the dress of a first century person, maybe somebody wearing a toga-like garment. And, and if you're going to run, you need to shed that thing before you run or you need to cinch it up. You need to get rid of it because it will constrict you. And that's what the author is saying here, that sin does it clings closely it constricts us and that's the trick the lie the spiritual warfare of the enemy the thing that we think is going to give us pleasure actually restricts us and constricts us and sucks the life out of us 
for our race. Listen to this, this proverb. I can remember reading this as a young man in college, struggling with the constricting effect of sin on my life. And I can remember being just floored and convicted and encouraged and exhorted, and chastened and helped by this verse. Proverbs 5, verse 21 and 22. He says, for a man, the proverb says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Just picture how sin entangles us. Apart from all of the other disastrous effects it has on our life, apart from what it will do for us maybe as we stand before the Lord or disqualify us from standing before the Lord, all all these things that it can do, the picture here is that it, it hinders us. It's like being hogtied, and it, and it hinders us from running. And so here in the first verse, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, run unhindered. Here's a question before we move on. What hinders you, what hinders me from running the race of the Christian life? What is it? Now here's a, a bit of a love-hate relationship that I have with, with questions like this or application when I'm preaching. You know, I, I think sometimes that one of the shortcomings of, of my preaching through the years is, 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 is I think I'm good on doctrine, but I always think about wanting to apply the text more effectively and more poignantly and more decisively and, and more critically to the lives of, of the people that, in some sense, along with the rest of the elders that I'm responsible for. And I always feel like maybe I don't do that as well as I should. And I confess that to you, but here, here's, here's sort of the, the, the other side of that coin is that there can be a kind of two-edged sword to that because it can become so specific that it kind of lets us off the hook. It's a little bit of what I alluded to just a moment ago with, with just spiritual neutral things. And you know, I don't mention the thing that you, you maybe are, are neutralized by, so thank goodness for that. But here's the point is that is that don't rely on the preacher or the Bible study leader to, to mention your specific thing. Each of us has the responsibility to do the work, to look at this text and to, to be chastened by it and to put ourselves under it. And the writer is saying the sin, the broad category of disobedience to the Lord, he's saying do not let that ensnare you. And we will all stand before the Lord one day. And we will give an account of our lives and the things that we've given ourselves to and the things that we have allowed to entangle us in, the things that have hindered us. So the question is, what hinders you from running the race of the Christian life? And and what will you do about it today? That's the question. Do not run hindered run unhindered. The second thing is the text says run with endurance. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now the Christian life is it's it's a it's an endurance race. It's not a sprint. I mean I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years that you know maybe they heard a message, they heard an emotional appeal, they heard a gospel presentation and it seems like they just start out quickly, and then all of a sudden they, they kind of fade. But the, the picture here is not a 100-meter or 100-yard dash, but a long journey, an endurance race. And part of what fuels our endurance is to not run hindered. 
So if you start off on this long endurance with a rucksack around your back or cords of sin wrapped around your legs constricting your movements, you will get tired much more quickly. And you think about the things, the, the, the things that might hinder us and, and, and that aren't necessarily sinful, but we think about even just the social technology that we have and how it hinders us and it makes us more tired than ever before. Isn't it ironic that the things that are meant to save us time actually sap us of energy because we're slaves to our phones and our computers? And the text here is saying, run with endurance. And I love this. The race that is set before us. It's a, it's, a, it's a path marked out for the Lord by the Lord for his people. There's a young man in our church. He's, he's actually away this weekend visiting some friends. And next weekend is his last Sunday here at Cross Point. He's been in the army. His name is C.J. Stillman. CJ's getting out of the army. He's been in the Ranger Battalion. And if you were at our last member meeting, you heard about his plans. The Lord, he feels, has called him to walk carrying a cross, a PVC pipe cross that he made along with Bill Neal and a couple other guys. He's going to walk from Virginia Beach in Virginia across this little thing we like to call the United States of America. He's going to walk all the way from Virginia to Los Angeles, and he's going to start March 1st, and he's going to, Lord willing, end and arrive in Los Angeles on August 1st, and CJ's got this map marked out. He knows, at least according to as far as he can tell his plan, where he's going to stop along the way and what roads he's going to be on, the interstates and places that he's going to stop and refuel and get rest and all that stuff, and he's, he's set his course. He didn't just say, well, you know, I think I'll walk across America, and I'm going to start in Virginia, and I'll just, find, I'll just read the signs and go as I go. He has set a course, and the picture I have here in Hebrews is that the course is set before us, that everything that the Christian faces is something that the Lord, think about this, that the Lord has set before you. Think about your own life. Think about the day of your birth. Up until this point, that everything that you have faced, good and bad, trial and tragedy, mountaintop and valley, that it is part of the race, not just in a general sense, but in a specific sense that the Lord has set before you. It's what God has given you. Listen to how Christians of long ago pieced this together in a doctrinal statement, the the Puritan English Baptist in 1689 in London wrote the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Here's chapter 3, Divine Providence. Listen to this. About this idea of how everything that's set before us is, comes from God. They said this. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of, corruption, of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes." So, listen to this last sentence. So whatever happens to any 
of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. By his appointment for his glory and for their good. So that means that every turn, every disappointment, every heartache, every tear, every tragedy, every hill, every valley, every obstacle has been set before the Christian for our good. Now, friends, I want to confess that I think that is absolutely true, but that is very easy to preach on a Sunday morning, and it is much harder to live through the week. Amen? But that's true. That's true. Come on, make contact with the text. Make contact... Take this text and bring it into your life. The goal is not just to get through a sermon here. It's for you, to, for us to encounter Christ and his word. That everything that you're facing right now, every, every, every moment of anxiety, even, and this is a mystery to me, because this, we need to be careful with this doctrine of God's providence, because if, we're, if, if we don't apply it rightly, we will use providence as an excuse for our sin. But even our sin, even our sin, which we are still culpable for, which we are still responsible for, which we must repent of, the Lord uses for our good and in a sense that we cannot fully understand, has set it before us, allowed us to go through it, to wean us from ourselves, to bring us to a place of humility. Every circumstance outside of us, the Lord brings to us so that we would run with endurance, so that we would lean on Him rather than ourselves. The race that is set before us that he has ordained every step along the way. Friends, that is the privilege of a right doctrine of the good providence of God in the lives of his people. It is full of mystery. It is incomprehensible. It's inscrutable, but it is true. And knowing that and holding fast to that and trusting that even in the middle of the dark valley is essential to spiritual sanity. The Lord calls us to run this race that is set before us. I don't, I don't know what you may be going through, but whatever it is, it's not arbitrary, it's not capricious, it's not random. And it has not surprised God, but in the wise counsel of his goodness to you, it has been set before you. Rest in that, dear Christian, and that rest provides endurance. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he's committed to me until that day. So we run unhindered, we run with endurance, and finally, finally we run looking to Jesus. Look at verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Notice how it kind of comes full circle here. This endurance that we're called to, to, to bring to the table, in a sense, is fueled by looking to Jesus. So let's just look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus is called the founder of and perfecter of our faith. 
What does that mean? Maybe you have a translation that says he's the author and the finisher. I love those, that phrase, but I, I love here as well, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Go back to, with the Bible open on your lap, go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and notice this connection of this idea of Jesus being the founder of our faith. Hebrews 2 verse 10, for it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, Jesus is the fountainhead of, of the new humanity where Adam and everybody from Adam has blown it through disobedience. Jesus is the founder. He's the fountainhead. He's the establishment of a new humanity. God has become man to redeem mankind for himself, and he becomes the founder, the establisher of our salvation. And how does he bring it about? Through suffering. So through Jesus' death on the cross, through him absorbing the punishment that should have been ours, he becomes the founder, the establishment, the cornerstone of the gospel, the cornerstone of our salvation. And he's not only the founder, he is the perfecter. So from beginning to end, we look to Jesus who has established, who has accomplished, and who will bring to completion our salvation. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, this is a glorious verse. Hebrews 10 verse 14. We, we read it a few months ago, and I'm just captivated by Hebrews 10 verse 14. I think it's one of the most important verses in all of the letter. It says, for by, Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know I've been captivated by that verse for a long time. It means that Jesus' offering, I want you to just follow the logic of the text here. For by a single offering, and what's going on in Hebrews chapter 10, he's in the middle of this argument that Jesus is better. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices of the Old Testament law, these animal sacrifices that he had to do over and over and over again. But now, Jesus is the new and better sacrifice. So by a single offering, once and for all, on the cross... What has Jesus done? He's taken the punishment, the wrath of God on himself. So the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. And because he is completely divine and completely obedient in his humanity, he extinguishes the wrath of God. He satisfies the wrath of God. He removes the wrath of God. He, he propitiates the wrath of God is the biblical word, which means he he takes the wrath of God, he, t he absorbs it, he removes it, and he turns it into God's grace. And so by his offering on the cross, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified. So what happens on the cross, what, where Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, is that Jesus has started salvation through his work on the cross, but he hasn't only started it, he's finished it to the point that the Bible actually speaks of our salvation in the past tense. But in reality, we have to actually run the race that we know Jesus has promised to bring us all the way through. So zoom back out and think about how that might motivate you. 
Think if you're running a race and, and in your mind you are out of it. You're thinking about giving up or you're doing a ruck march or a ruck run and you are ready to give up and you, you feel so exhausted because of your own fatigue, because of the circumstances around you and because of the own weakness of your own sin. And this word comes to you and it says, don't give up, run unhindered, look to Jesus and let that cause you to have endurance because you know that no matter what you're facing, Jesus will bring you all the way home. So imagine I've never ran a marathon, and by the way, I have no plans to. But if I were running a marathon, and on say mile 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or whatever, you know how your mind can start to play tricks on you when you're tired. And you just you start you start to believe. You just you're just prone. You're you're vulnerable. And if, and if the race organizer came to me in this mythical marathon, which again I have no plans to run. And in that moment of weakness and mental fatigue, he says, "I guarantee you you are going to make it to the finish line." What would that do to your soul? It, you, may not, you may not break any records, but you're going to make it. And that's what this text is doing. It's saying that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work will complete it, friends. That's meant to be the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's not just meant to be a theological category. It's meant to be fuel for the weary Christian who's fighting to shed the weight and the sin that weighs them down. And how did he do it? By the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Think about that. On the cross, Jesus made a calculation that the joy of the accomplishment of the redemption of all those that the Father has given him was worth enduring the cross. Now that, that's glorious. John chapter 6 says that all that, Jesus is saying this, he says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. That's certain. There's this, there's this covenant between Father and Son, the triune God, even before the creation of the world that, that they allowed in their mysterious providence to fall, that there's this covenant between God himself in his triune nature to create a world that he would allow to fall, that then he would send Jesus to redeem a great multitude from the fall, and that he would give those people to Jesus. Now, if the Trinity is making a pact with itself, a covenant with itself, it's going to happen. But yet the way that it happens is through the actual accomplishment of the redeeming of those that the Father has given to the Son. So even though it's guaranteed to happen, Jesus had to become a man. He had to endure temptation to sin. He had to resist it all the way to the end. And then he had to bring his obedience and his perfection to the cross so that on the cross, the punishment that should have been his people, the ones that the Father gave to him, 
would be reconciled, redeemed, satisfied, and his obedience, his righteousness, would be transferred to them. And what the calculation here that the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus used, was motivated by the joy of the certainty of redemption as a means of enduring his suffering. That God the Son himself was motivated by the joy of redemption and its promise, and that's how he endured the cross. Think about that. And so if Jesus used the joy of the accomplishment of his race that was set before him, then how much more should we use the joy of finishing our race and the certainty of that as motivation for our daily crosses that we must pick up? Do you see this? I want you to, I want you to grab a hold of the logic of the text. That when you're in the middle of suffering, the joy of endurance, the joy of the promise, the joy that we know that Jesus is not just the founder, but the perfecter of our faith, that he will bring us all the way home, that I will make it, that he is mine and I am his, that is motivation to get up the next morning, even in the darkest of valleys, and put one foot in front of the other, and to live, and to run, and to race with Jesus, because he will bring us all the way home. That's the motivation. That's the logic of this text. This is not complicated. It's not complicated. But come on now. It's not particularly easy, is it? And that's why we need each other. And finally, it says, He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. So on the cross, Jesus is making, here it is, the creator. Again, I want you to, I want you to make contact. I want you to feel the logic of the text. Jesus is despising the shame, the creator of the universe is despising. He, in his mind, is ridiculing the shame of the ridicule of being crucified naked and bearing the wrath of God for our sin. He despised that, and as a result, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that little last half sentence in verse 2 is rich with importance. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, meaning his work is finished. There's no more more redeeming that needs to be done. There's nothing that we bring to the table to redeem us. The only thing we bring is the sin that's necessary to be redeemed from, and even the faith that we exercise in Jesus by which we get justified and redeemed is a gift of God that, that is our only fitting response to him. Jesus is seated. He's done. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. He's done it. But not only is he finished, is accomplished, done, because he's seated as a priest who's not standing, but he's seated. He's also at the right hand of God, as Hebrews 7, 25 says, and he daily lives to make intercession for you if you're a Christian. And so, think about this again. I want to get inside the, the interactions, the, the community of the triune God. If the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, deemed, covenanted with itself to bring about the redemption of all of those that the Father has given to the Son, how certain is that? Well, then also, then we have the Son praying to the Father, making daily intercession for you. That's in Hebrews chapter 7. It's also in Romans chapter 8. And oh, by the way, earlier in Romans chapter 8, we have the Spirit 
groaning for, taking our groans and praying to God for us, the Father. So you have the Spirit and the Son praying for us as we are running the race. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Think about this. The text is saying, run with endurance, run unhindered, get rid of the sin, repent of the sin. Come on, you got to do this, you got to do this. Think critically about your life. What holds you back? What is it? Is it, is it your job? Is it, is, it, is it money? Is it some aspiration? Is it, is it something, it's a, some friend group? It's not necessarily sinful, but it's just holding you back. What are you going to do about it right now? And the way you do it is by looking to Jesus and you, you see him, you see what he's done on the cross, and you see what he's doing right now, that he's praying for you, and he is guaranteeing that you will make it home. And what does that do? That gaze at Jesus comes back into your soul and it gives you endurance and energy to keep running the race but you gotta we gotta stare at it we gotta look at it and we gotta spend time and not check Instagram in the middle of a church service and not be like little lab rats on crack running to the next thing that wants to weigh us down the battle for most of us in our busy age is to just for long enough to look at Jesus. And boy, do I need that myself. So here we have a perfect opportunity to look to Jesus, to take the elements, the bread and the cup. The bread representing his broken body Remember, this is what Jesus has done for me. All my sin was laid on him, and he, he, bore his, he bore my sin on his body. He was broken for me, and his blood that was spilled has established a new covenant in his name, by his blood, that he will bring all of his people home. And as I gaze, what better way what better reminder? This is why Jesus has given us this, this, this meal to do regularly, not just to be a, a, a thing that Christians do, but, but this meal that we're about to do is meant to be a tangible way that we actually do what verse 2 and verse 3 call us to do, to look to Jesus, to remember what he's done, and to consider him for us. And so do that today, please. Look to Jesus and and think about your life and let that fuel you for the race. Now, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you should not take this meal. Don't just be caught up in the fact that you're here at a church that's doing communion. This is for Christians. This is for people who know that they are trusting in Jesus, that their sins are forgiven. In fact, the Bible warns against doing this in a, in a way, out of unbelief or in an unworthy manner. So don't do this. And if you are a Christian that is in willful disobedience to God, repent of that before you come to this meal. Turn away from that. Do not come to this table just presuming on the grace of God, but look to Jesus. But if you need Jesus, if you're beaten up by sin and your heart is repentant, come to this table. This meal is for weary runners of the race, not perfect saints, because there are none. And we look to Jesus, and we take the cup, and we take the bread, and we feast 
and we gain endurance. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to the table, may we look to Jesus. Lord, put, put steel in our spines. Put oxygen, gospel oxygen in our lungs. Strengthen our spiritual muscles. Nutrition in our soul by this meal. May we run unhindered with endurance, looking to Jesus. I pray it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.